This is Frameform. Welcome and welcome back to Frameform. Today we're going on another adventure to scout some more locations. You'll need your snowshoes and honestly a plane ticket to somewhere warm. We are going to be looking at different snowy locations and before we dive in we just want to mention that Claire is not going to be with us for this episode. We will miss her dearly, but she has sent in a recommendation, so she will still be with us in spirit and in curation. So we're going to start today's episode on snowy locations with a bit of an icebreaker and a throwback to one of the earliest films that Hannah and I have a shared connection with, and that film is Directions by Ina Granulo. So Hannah, I don't know about you, but when we decided to do snowy locations. This is the first film that popped in my mind because I think it was one of the first snowy screen dances I'd ever seen. What's your memory of this film and how do you contextualize it in your memories and experience with screen dance? To be honest, when we were putting together our work doc for this episode and I watched this film, I totally forgot about it. Uh, (laughs) It's been so long since I've seen that film and maybe maybe it's because I just haven't seen it in a long time and it was one of the early films of screen notes watching, uh, particularly in this location in snow. I mean, when Jen sent me a cut of it, it was actually a one minute preview, so I totally did not put any image in my head until she sent me the correct cut. I have a great memory for thumbnails, and obviously the thumbnail is what sold me and put that memory back into my bank. But yeah, this is a this is a quintessential. I'm gonna say it a backdrop film for me in the snowbank. <laughs> uh, but it's a good one. It's a good one. I totally get what you're saying about the thumbnail, and each of the films we're discussing today has elements that make them a little not entirely generic they do something to set themselves apart and with this one I feel like part of it is the yellow jacket that's just such an iconic fashion item and the presence of a little bit of moss and greenery yeah it's kind of like it's snowy but it's not this intense getting beaten down by the elements type thing it's like no we're in Greenland it's fine like it snows here it's all good I just need a good pair of shoes yeah I don't think it highlights this harshness and this heaviness that you would maybe think about snow. Like, especially if we're looking at locations, there's some locations that evoke ideas of peace Mm -hmm. or calm or serenity. And then there's those where you're like, that's legit hazardous. Yeah. (laughs) You need protective gear to go there. Snowy tundra and glaciers, mountains or deserts, like these can really be extreme environments. So I think sometimes the expectation when we see a film's going to be set in the snow is that we're going to see these really epic shots. And I think a challenge is because it is so hard to film in those locations. Maybe there, and I'm sure there are restrictions on what you can actually execute, which is why these may become across as, like you said, backdrop films. Do you want to kind of explain what you mean by that? (laughs) Yeah. I get it because we've had those sorts of conversations. But for someone that's maybe like, oh, I haven't thought about that sort of terminology for it, what would you classify as a quote-unquote backdrop film? 
Okay. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is Globetrotter Mitchell Rose. I mean, that's a match cut film specifically choreographed and made with match cuts. However, because the movement uh, connects so well, the backdrop changes, you know, like um, we see it's a dancer in an environment and you can literally pick them up and put them somewhere else and it doesn't change the movement at all. All that changes is the backdrop. I mean, there's a lot of films that exhibit this, obviously, as I said, with match cut films, but it's not really interacting with the environment, which is the most important part of these landscape films and why we're doing this location scout series, a part of our show. I think that's the most important part of making dance film in general is we're not just you know, transporting the audience through a camera lens and editing, but we're also taking them out of the proscenium space. We're putting them somewhere that we have maybe seen before or never been before but I think the most important part is noting that there's rocks there's snow there are bugs there are elements of things coming out of the sky those are factors that you need to address in that environment in order to make sense of it It, in all it's like might as well just dancing in a void. And as I've said on numerous occasions, specifically noting to the Swimming Pools episode as well as the Warehouse film episode. Definitely gives this impression of the no place, any place, liminal space that we routinely see. I feel like most of these location episodes, we kind of cycle back into that framework, which is if it's not done with intentionality, with site-specific choreography, with that tactile sense and that really great sound design and everything that comes together, then it just does seem like it could just be an editorial photo shoot or just a series of really cool shots. Yeah. Usually I really like when I can follow up with like an interview or like a behind the scenes or something with those sorts of trickier environments just to even gain more from it because at the end of the day I think that sometimes what's more interesting than the finished product itself is how it's made yeah you know so this film actually does have a behind the scenes that you can peep it's pretty like short and lighthearted. I almost like the behind the scenes better <laughs> than the film for this one don't get me wrong I, I love the film but I just get more out of the behind the scenes personally and of course, that and all the films we're going to talk about today are linked in the show notes. Hannah, did you get to see the behind-the-scenes clip as well? What did you think of that? I mean, it's definitely very fun. Looks like they had a not-miserable time, <laughs> <laughs> which you would expect. You would maybe expect in a cold landscape. Uh, the music is very uppity. Which is good. I mean, that's good in a, in a landscape like that. You want to have a good crew... Everyone is cold just as much as the dancer is, even though they might be wearing a little less clothing in that regard. But it's a great location to just explore and play around in. And I think that's the one of the most important parts of making screen dance is just 
improvising and trying out things that work and enjoying the moment of what you, the dancer, or you, the cinematographer, or you, the director, are doing to make something beautiful happen. Well, and speaking of the moment, we touched on this a little earlier introducing the film. I think that this does represent a particular era of dance filmmaking. It happened to overlap with when I started producing Cascadia Dance and Cinema Festival. And I remember pulling it from the internet and thinking, oh, this is one of those films that is already out there, but the quality is high enough that I think people still need to see it. It's from a cool location. It's got a cool concept. Visually, it's stunning. And I remember using it as a promotional image and being super proud of it. But I actually think I might have found it originally on this really cool group called Screen Dance Collective. (laughs) Uh, For those listeners of Frameform, you probably have already heard of Screen Dance Collective, but I'll let Hannah share a little bit about what that was and how I would have found this really cool film on there. I've voiced this many times, but yeah, Screen Dance Collective was and still is existing online if you care to take a look, but we've turned it into an archive of source of finding legitimate screen dances online that are available to watch online because not a lot of them are available to watch online. And if you've listened to uh, episode four of this season, Claire and I talk about the importance of putting your work on the internet um, for screen dance watching. And that was essentially what the goal was, was Netflix for screen dance without having to pay and just, binging content but yeah this film definitely exhibited early uh i wouldn't say not super early i mean we could say early as maya darren but (laughs) the 2000 the mid 2000s of screen dance making where you know cameras are getting more high tech and able to create beautiful works of art with a dslr camera slow motion endless amounts of money and not the pandemic and just (laughs) possibility is everything definitely exhibits vimeo screen dance filmmaking uh for its time and i think a natural outgrowth of that was platforms like nowness emerging because we had a different kind of audience for screen dance we were starting to become fragmented and i think that it is worth repeating (laughs) like you said this was pre-covid that's something that was really valuable and amazing about screen dance collective is that this was before everything was in a way mandated to be online or it wouldn't exist and as a curator I was really excited that there was a sort of stamp of approval from people that were looking at things with a specific screen dance lens to sort of add that and what a great kind of tie-in or community resource as well so I love that it's still available as an archive and I think that it was just so forward-thinking to do it at the time you did it so kudos to you and Screen Dance Collective and, you know, may the legend live on. So the next film is, as I mentioned, a nowness film. It's called The Between All Things and also has a Japanese title of Ma. So directed by Niels Castillon, this was performed by Fanny Sage, who is based in France. The film, though, was shot in Iceland. So I hadn't seen this film before today's episode, and this is something that I really love about our conversations as I get to discover so many things and 
nice thematic packages. <laughs> so Hannah, had you seen this film before and what was your impression? Yeah, I actually found this on Instagram. I followed them on Instagram. So you get your daily, weekly content of Nowness, which is really nice. And I was immediately blown away by the landscape. I mean, when you first see this on the newsfeed, you just see Fanny Sage dancing in this windy, moody, blue environment with just snow sweeping, consistently sweeping across her feet. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And, I mean, obviously that makes me want to watch the rest of the film. And I just thought this was a good example of backdrop films. And how this film, I think, is also considered a backdrop film. What do you think, Jen? I think to the extent that it's a backdrop film, at least it's a backdrop video friendly film versus a backdrop film where you're like oh this could just be a photo shoot yeah like at least and like you said the the wind blowing like that gave it this layer of tactility and gave it more interest like we don't always like when we think frozen I don't necessarily think things are alive and moving I think Han Solo like they're completely frozen there's no movement happening Maybe a spring trickling through or some icicles melting, but I don't think about this really cool element of the wind that is actually expressed through the title cards and, like, the structure there. Yeah. So I think I did get a bit of that where it's like, oh, yeah, this is just a series of really cool visuals, but I think that the structure and intention kind of salvage that in a way because it's adding this meaning and the symbolism to the visuals. But in a way, I just wonder if we are all so desensitized that we expect things to be at a certain production level in some contexts. And then once it gets there, it's like, well, it just looks really glossy and like I'm not getting anything from it. And it's so hard to find that balance, you know? Yeah. So looking at this film, it's beautiful. And I really think that if anything that is the star of this is the mise-en-scene. Uh, speaking on to- speaking of where the dancer is placed in the space, as well as the backdrop itself. Obviously, they're interacting in a way, maybe not together, or the dancer is actually interacting with it, but they do play a nice relationship amongst each other. However, I feel like this film could be placed elsewhere, whether that be in the desert or I also imagine a a lake where it's shallow water. I think that would be beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, the film itself has this really nice little written thing about it. I'll quote it here. The Japanese have a knack for describing situations and phenomena rendered ineffable in the English language, such as moon's reflection on water, the therapeutic benefits of spending time in the forest, And sunlight streaming through the trees. I mean, right there. (laughs) There's nothing on winter right there. Like, this is just talking about, like, the elements of nature, which is also introduced in the film itself. So when you get this, like, earth, wind, and fire (laughs) reference, I, I mean, it's just like, oh, they're in 
Iceland. It's beautiful. I mean, the other cutaways that are inserted in this film, they look great. I kind of wish I saw more of it. I'm not exactly sure if this is a snippet of a longer piece, but just that alone, you can tell, like, oh, I mean, you they could be in a windstorm somewhere Arizona, and this could be passable. What do you think of that? I think that for the location they had, they did get a good variety, but maybe I just need to watch it again or a few times. I couldn't exactly trace a through line with the structure of those locations and what we're seeing. There was this clear framework for things. We were getting the clear message with the words and the subtitles and those title cards coming up, but I just viscerally didn't connect with it, even though it looked so epic and sounded so epic and had these really um, lofty artistic intentions. And I wonder if right. part of it might be a, a product of overproduction and my own desensitization or something. Um, yeah. It could also just be seeing that, that name now and it's at the beginning, be like, oh, this has got to be good. And of course, sometimes they do just feel like a kind of concept video for like a fashion brand or something totally like with this one I think the moment that I I didn't want to but I think the moment I checked out was when um you saw the guy standing in the glacial crater with the microphones around him I just became so aware of the technology at that point and instead of yeah thinking about where the camera was floating like those leading lines in the windstorm that you mentioned and like all of that happening before I was aware of the camera movement but as soon as I saw the microphone I was aware of the camera itself in a more very blatant way and I kind of felt like I was there making it versus like experiencing a finished product and then she breaks the fourth wall a couple minutes later and I was like yeah I know you're looking at me (laughs) just kind of like ruin the magic in a way um And that sucks because I guess that means that we're really spoiled. But I I don't know what would make me connect with the film even more. Like maybe it was just the really long takes and the lack of getting in there. I'm someone that does like more cutty editing. Mm -hmm. It has all the ingredients and I don't know why it's not like, yes, I love it. I feel like what this film could benefit is more soundscapes. I would have loved to hear more wind. I feel like we heard a little bit of it in the beginning and then it just totally exited its way out. And then we're introduced with music Mm -hmm. and which is fine at times, but there's something about setting the tone of an environment that really helps the viewer understand the space Especially in that beginning, before we are even introduced to the dancer in that location, there's this person sitting in that crater with a bunch of microphones. I'm ready to hear some weird stuff, (laughs) whether that be like trickling of water or breathing or just the sound of the cave or wind. I got someone singing off of MP3 track, and that's where we get lost and then (laughs) a dance film becomes a music video which you can do but 
You have to be thoughtful about it. What's a musician to do or, you know, a vocal artist that wants to have a really cool music video with dance? It's almost like we need to make sure we find a way that we can get along and that things can actually overlap. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that's just going to be the way things are watching dance films or screen dances. It's like, okay, if there's a microphone present... Like, it now feels more like a narrative, or it feels like a music video, or performance video. Uh I mean, obviously, there could be a more artistic way to include it, like, as a prop, or a character, even. But I don't know what it is. I still think this is a really great film to watch, and a good example of how to not just do a bunch of cool shots, how to actually try and put things together in a poetic way that says something and has an artistic intent. But at the end of the day, I think it kind of blends with, like, the nowness or now what I would call, like, a uh, like a Jacob Jonas, the company kind of aesthetic, like that internet dance film, next wave, post-YouTube, post-Vimeo. And in that way, I guess it's kind of iconic. And our next film, in a new wave of screen dance, I also think is pretty iconic because I saw this thumbnail for pretty much every single festival the year that it was released. <laughs> this is a film from Quebec called Glace, Crevasse et Derive, meaning ice, broken, and drifting. I'm pretty sure that's the translation. If it's not, please let us know kindly. It has been a while since I have taken French in school or even lived in a French-speaking country. So... I think it is ice broken and drifting, and Hannah agrees, based on watching the film, that that title makes a lot of sense. Yeah, when we were trying to translate this and looking it up and seeing drifting, it's like, oh, that makes sense. I'm seeing a lot of drifting in this film. This work is actually a work that Claire picked out. Thank you, Claire. And it definitely has a tactile, tactile I like saying that word, experience when watching it. Uh, (laughs) And you could say tectonic plates are moving. Tectonic uh, icebergs are drifting in this sense. I thought this was a really strong work, especially since all the things that we've been talking about today and how we've been seeing these backdrop films. We haven't seen a lot of works or been showcasing works for this episode that are strong examples of using snow in a landscape and this one definitely takes the cake yes I agree this film has that tactile element to it because again it breaks my expectations when I think about snow or ice I don't necessarily think about these fragments and icebergs and things floating and drifting I sometimes think of this mass and this monolith or this glacier or an iceberg that's hopefully very stable and not gonna flip over the description of this film by the filmmakers is that it's a metaphorical piece about death and the perpetual cycle of life Set along the shores of the St. Lawrence River, the drifting blocks of ice caught in the river's current represent the flow of time. Mm. And I think that this is a really good example of a film that actually demonstrates what it writes. Not speaking of anything in this episode, but just in general, sometimes we have the film description 
that exists and the actual video that exists and you might not even pair them together yeah looking at both examples right i am someone who doesn't read what the about is or what the director has given us in the description I'm always, I like to err on the side of of the general audience that is just here to watch and move forward. And I mean, what he, what they have written there is really apparent to what was, what I was experiencing when watching this, Uh, especially talking about time. I thought right away, this was a commentary on global warming. Uh, There's these examples of objects floating on a glacier there's definitely one of a stuffed animal of a stuffed bear floating away wink there's one of a baby carriage floating away wink it's like reference to odessa (laughs) family portrait wink exactly so the things that we care about and the changing of environment and time i mean talk about a heat wave that is actually happening across the the world at this time of we're of when we're recording but definitely erring on the side of concern i would say not just that i mean with the touching of the snow in this environment as well as the interaction it's giving us the dancers are playing within the space acting as animals they're playing amongst a tree, (laughs) biting the snow at some point. I mean, you definitely feel a chilling experience when watching. Like, you actually feel kind of cold. Oh, immediately. As soon as that bare foot goes into the snow. (laughs) In the first shot, I was like, ah, I need a blanket. Yeah, (laughs) which I think was, like, the, the one film in this set of three that we've given here where I didn't, I actually felt something mm. I felt temperature and there's a lot of films I can think of like Fargo for instance oh up here up up there <laughs> whole film taking place in the snow and you feel very cold where directions and the between all things films failed to deliver you know we have talked a lot about kinesthetic empathy and how sometimes watching things through dance can make it feel like that much more of just a pure human soulful transmission of information or meaning but I feel like in this case there's a very practical element of when you have a character that's not speaking that you're observing there's that distance like at least in Fargo they're probably talking about like oh it's so it's so darn cold like I'm freezing they're shivering you can see like the snow on their face like you can see the struggle yeah we can relate to it more and I feel like This film, they went all in. Like, you could see from the very beginning that we've got bare feet in the snow. It's not just this beautiful backdrop. It feels much more like an environment than, as you've said, just like a space that could be swapped out for something else. Yeah, I have to say, though, looking at all three examples, and this is something that we've briefly talked about in other episodes of Location Scout. And then we can compare this to Fargo, too. The camera work, or where the camera is placed, the mise-en-place, they're all using these wide, open shots. That 
gives you a sense of isolation and cold. Cold feeling, being alone, being vulnerable. And that goes similar with some of the other uh, films that we've talked in the past and other episodes, such as The Desert, Open Wide Space, Being Empty, Being Deserted, Being Completely Alone, but yet we have a temperature shift. We're not in cold, we're in warm. So you feel that feeling of heat and desperation. In this sense, it's desperation in the cold. Uh, we get that with the warehouse film as well. Big open space. But I'm not really sensing desperation, feeling isolated. In that sense, it's like being almost haunted. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how like these change of environments yet use these open locations, but yet kind of shift the tone and the mood on the temperature scale and as the adjective scale in describing what one is feeling in that location. For sure, and of course the position of the audience member encountering it is going to feel very different as well. Um, You know, like... I think that out of all the categories we've covered, we've probably seen the least snow films and maybe the most warehouse films. Right. So maybe the fact that we've seen so many warehouse films and that for a lot of us is not like a daily environment that we're in, it becomes synonymous with that sort of video culture. Whereas snow is something that has its own reality to it and I think that here we're seeing examples of films that are made in snowy environments where people live and work and play and have always existed and it's like snow's not a big deal for them um you know whereas if you go to a place where snow is not common the expectation's really different I grew up with family that didn't experience snow ever and when they visited Canada in the summer they were expecting oh let's see snow and it's like well it's not all year in all parts of the country and right I think snow carries this mythical element to it that we have these lofty expectations Mm, yeah maybe we almost are overthinking this in some way thinking oh it's just a backdrop it's another blank slate it's another no place any place (laughs) but if we really look at what is like that base level symbolism like what is that first impression someone might have the choices these filmmakers made do make sense for what they ended up doing i love this moment this word you used mythical there is something mythical about snow and maybe that is because not everyone experiences that and in this last film uh There's this one part that has that kind of spark of mythical meaning, personality. You see these two forces of nature of people that it just all of a sudden appearing in these glamorous costumes. What talking about mythical in winter time, what what did you think of that moment in the film? Yeah, the entire last section of the film really shifts, and I think that you, at least I notice a lot more of the element of wind, like the snow contacting the people, and just that surrendering to the elements more than seeing these anchoring objects from reality. 
in a way, this kind of feels more seamless to me at the end. And it's, I mean, given the story, I think this is kind of that moment where they surrender to that cycle of life. And I don't know if this is meant to represent like a death or, you know, one of them dies or I, I don't know. But to me, it seems like this letting go and this kind of airy purge right before it ends. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, we cut right to a calm moment after this possible surrender or mythical element of bringing in so much snow. And then it cuts to calm, almost empty water, deserted water. There's not as much icebergs as there was before. And... I mean, like snow, or we could say seasons in general, snow is when we retire. Plants go to retire. We are mostly living like bears hibernating. There are dead plants outside. It goes to rest. And that is what snow creates for us every single year, at least speaking on the mid-Atlantic coast. And it's also unfortunately what it's time to do now with this episode of Location Scout. So I am really glad that we were able to talk about another form of water to kind of cover our sub-series of Location Scout series. And then we were like, oh, we should do water. And then brainstorming water, I don't even know how many we came up with. It was probably no less than seven different water type of environments and I love that we're also doing this not too far after our desert episode as well so if this is your first location scout episode there are other ones like this where we look at a specific setting or environment we pick a few films and we sort of unpack that symbolism and talk about each film on its own as well so definitely check those out I find it hilarious whenever we draw how a location relates to another location or as I always like to say they're all draw back to the void and you know what happens into the void anything could happen and (laughs) I mean that's basically what we're doing as dance filmmakers we're making the anything happen I love that well I love discussing the anything and the everything with you and next week we'll also have Claire back with us which will be awesome as well it was great talking with you and it'll be even better when we got Claire next week It was snow great. Snow great. Do you want to meet the Frameform team in person? Do you want to see dance on the big screen again? Your opportunity is coming up soon. Dance Cinema is hosting the 6th Annual Capital Dance and Cinema Festival in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, October 8th. Check out our website in the show notes for the schedule and the details. We hope to see you there. Do you love what you're hearing? Do you want to be heard? Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com and engage with us on social at frameformpod. That's frameform, P-O-D. If you really love what you're hearing, leave us a review and rate the show. It makes it easier for more listeners to find it. If you want to spread the love, tell your friends to subscribe and keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.